All right, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bible, which you should, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you've missed the 8 million introductions that I've given on the Sermon on the Mount, go online, get the podcast, get caught up. But basically, it's about false righteousness versus true righteousness. Do me a favor. Y'all are getting real comfortable, but I need y'all to move up. I need you to move up closer to me so that I don't feel like I have to, like, have a harness on me and bungee cord back and forth, okay? Move up. I love you. I won't spit on you. You can do it. You can do it. Look at Rob. Eager Rob. Yeah, Pauline. Come on. Bring it, Pauline. Come on, Matthew. Andrea, get your tail up off the couch. Let's go. Come on. Come on, Shayna. Don't look at me like that. She's going to snap her fingers in a second. Come on. You can do it. You can do it. What happens is when we sit on those couches, we, we think that we're like at a coffee house and that it's all about us. But if you're sitting in one of these really uncomfortable chairs, it's a good reminder of, um, I don't know what it's a reminder of, but there you go, Pauline. You can't go to sleep. All right, Matthew chapter 5. Somebody get us caught up. What was Matthew, oh, I got the lame thing. What's Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 about? Jesus. Jesus. What else? John the Baptist, okay. Good, y'all are name droppers. I need some info, though. I'm sick of hearing myself say the same thing over and over each week. So, okay, yeah, way to look at your notes in your Bible. What's that mean? What do we learn about Jesus in the genealogy? Boom. Abraham, David, he's the rightful king. Not only that, but he is the divine king. Came from the Holy Spirit. That's Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 2, what happens? Okay, lots of prophecy. In fact, if you mark in your Bible, which you should, because y'all are learning how to study inductively, get on it. Get over putting colors in your Bible. It's, it's okay. We won't strip the man card away from you. It helps you to focus in on what the text says. If you look at the book of Matthew, the repeated word over and over and over and over and over, on and on and on, is fulfilled. The author of Matthew says, and this was a fulfillment, and then he gives the prophecy. If you have a New American Standard Bible or an English Standard Version, which all of you should... Um, it puts it in all caps, okay? Puts it in all caps. If you're reading the message here tonight, you don't need to use that as your study Bible. That's a, you've studied, you've studied, you've studied, then you look at the message, oh, that adds to it, or that is completely whack. Wrong, okay? That helps you with translation a little bit, okay? Matthew chapter 2, what's the fulfillment? What's going on in chapter 2? Yeah, wise men. Who's the antagonist? Who's the guy that's trying to take him out? Herod. Earthly king versus divine king. Jesus is only... Is he born yet? He's born, going through him being born to the time that he's two years old. And this earthly king, who's a lot older, is threatened by the divine king. Tries to take him out. All throughout chapter 2, you see this concept of the sovereignty of God. 
it, it was fulfilled. He wrote it a long time ago. And even though the plans of men try to come in there and shake things up a little bit, God's sovereignty trumps man's trying to wreck things up. So you've got a clash of kingdoms. Earthly kingdom, divine kingdom. Who wins? Divine kingdom always wins. Chapter 3, what happens? John the Baptist, hairy, locust-eating, honey-eating, weird guy, also fulfillment of Isaiah 40, that there would be a messenger that came that prepared the way in the wilderness, saying, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's speaking to self-righteous Jews who are, they, like Dusty said earlier, they missed the point of the law. The law was to show them that they could not do it on their own, that they needed a savior. They missed it. They still tried not only to keep the law, but they put man-made laws around the law to keep them from breaking the law and more man-made laws to keep them from breaking the man-made laws so that they wouldn't break the law. They really liked the law. That's where they got their kicks and giggles was the law. But the law, what the law could not do, Romans says, God did in Christ Jesus by making him become flesh so that he could trump the law, live the life that we could not live, die the death to pay for our sin, be raised on the third day so that he's victorious over sin, death. Wow. That's the gospel. That's the whole point. That's why we're here. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus shows up. What's his message? Oh, that's kind of important. Repent. What was the message of the entire Old Testament? Repent. Return. Return to me, Zechariah 1 says. Return to me and I will return to you. Hosea, beautiful story. I will break you. Though I've broken you, I will heal you if you return to me. Cool stuff. Jesus is up on the scene, public ministry happens, baptism happens, Badoom! this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's no question that Jesus is God. The heavens open up, this thing that looks like a dove, but not really a dove, comes and descends on Jesus, and this thunderous voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. And then, boom, chapter 4, what happens? Immediately... By the Holy Spirit, Jesus is led where? To the wilderness and what happens? Temptation 1, temptation 2, temptation 3. First two temptations. Are you really the Son of God? Third temptation, power. Forget the cross, go ahead and take your power now. What did Jesus use the whole time? Scripture to combat the enemy. The enemy leaves, he's going to come back later. Jesus is on the scene and we get to Matthew chapter 5. He calls some people up on the mountain. He just leaves these masses of people. They follow him. His disciples are there. And he says, what's he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the... Why? Blessed are the gentle because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they shall be satisfied. 
or filled. What's next? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain or receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be called... They shall see God. The next one, they shall be called children of God. And we get to the very last one. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, kingdom of heaven. Persecuted, kingdom of heaven. All of this is about the life, the invasion of the kingdom of God right now, not in the future. All throughout Matthew 5, 6, and 7, contrast of true righteousness versus self-righteousness. Chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Your reward, if you do that, is with men versus true righteousness. Doing it with the motivation of God the Father and Him and Him only. Chapter 7, we get to the twos. There's two roads. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. How many people are on it? Many, 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 many people are on this wide superhighway that leads to destruction. Contrast, narrow road, who's on it? Few, and where does it lead? Folks, that should tell you something. That should, that should just mess with you if you think that Christianity is about the masses. If you think that Christianity is about millions and thousands of people, this verse right here says, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many are on it. There's a narrow road. It's very small. And there are very few people who find it. Just in case you were confused about that, he goes into two trees. The false prophets, they have a tree that bears bad fruit. It bears bad fruit because the root of that tree is bad. Versus the true righteousness tree has good fruit. And if it has good fruit, the root is good. And then we have two houses at the very end. This is how Jesus sums it up. He says, anybody who hears these words, what words? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about true righteousness. Anybody who hears these words can be compared to, hears these words, sorry, and the important part, not just hear them, but acts on them, hears the word and applies the word. Hears the word, lets it mess with them, and then through the cross lives it out. Anybody who hears these words, acts on them, can be compared to the sensible or the wise man who built his house on the rock. Contrasted with that person who hears the word, but what? Oh my gosh, y'all. Hears the word, but doesn't do what? Doesn't put it into practice. Doesn't act on it. Parentheses. How many sermons have you heard? How many Bible studies have you done? How many... Times have you read through Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon? This is to me. I've read through it every year. Every, how many times? But the wise man, we're talking about wisdom um, on Sunday mornings from the book of Proverbs. This sensible, wise man hears these words of Jesus and acts on them. Jesus always requires action. Always. 
if you hear the word of God here or across the street or on Tuesday morning in the men's Bible study or in a, in a mentoring conversation over coffee, if you hear the word and it does not require action, either a change of your, your belief system or a change of the way that you're living your life, you're a fool based on this. James 2 says it like, what? Anybody know James 2? It might be chapter 1. James 2 is faith without works is dead. James 1 is, don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Okay? So, that's how Jesus ends this message. Then we have jumped into... Um, what each of these things mean. How are you to enter the kingdom of heaven? This is what righteousness looks like when it comes on earth. This is what repentance looks like. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's it look like? Where does it start? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Define that for me, please. What's it mean to be poor in spirit? What? Broken. Destitute, hopeless, lost. Remember the imagery of this word. Head down, knees down, in a pit, hands up, saying, I cannot do this. I need a Savior. Poor in spirit. That's the only way. That is the attitude of the heart of the person that enters the kingdom of heaven. And that naturally leads to, what's the next one? Mourning. As you see God for who he is. You are then belittled and just undone, as Isaiah 6 says. Undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, living amongst the people of unclean lips. This, the high and lofty exalted one, is the Lord. To this one I will look. Number one, him who is contrite of heart. And number two, the contrite heart person trembles at my word. Have you ever seen your poverty in spirit? Some of you have been thinking about this a lot over the, over the past couple of weeks. Your total inability to make yourself righteous and acceptable to God. Your attendance will not make you acceptable to God. Your Bible studies, your countless Christian t-shirts will not make you acceptable to God. Your standard of morality will not make you acceptable to God. You voting Republican will not make you acceptable to God. It is only through the cross, only through recognizing that you need him. So this results in you being crushed like a grape. You being humbled. You being desperate. It's painful to look at our lives in the mirror of God's word. James also says that the word is a mirror. When we look at the mirror and it reflects who we really are in view of who God really is, it's painful. Why is it painful? Mirrors don't lie. Explain. What do you mean? Oh, she even said in the morning, ladies.
Yeah. Yeah. I have six brothers and one sister, and unfortunately for a short period of our lives, we had to share one bathroom, and it was horrible. But my sister, poor thing, um, she would have her time in the bathroom, and she would require the last person who left to turn out all the lights except for one light so that in the morning when she woke up, she could deal with seeing herself in the mirror in a slow process of a way. The Word of God is the same. When we truly see who we are with the Word of God, it is a frightful thing because we have this world around us that tells us that we're great, we're wonderful, and everybody likes us. Like the old SNL guy, Pat Smalley, who looks in the mirror and says, you're great, you're wonderful, and everybody likes you. That's wrong. If you look at the Word of God, you see yourself for who you really are. We come face to face with our arrogance. We come face to face with our sin. But what a comfort to know that God's word is sure. And like the tax collector that we looked at last week. Remember the Pharisee? Oh, I'm so glad that I'm not like the tax collector. The tax collector, how did he respond to God? Woe is me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Out of God's mercy, we can cry out for it, and we can know that our God is near. He saves, and he will revive. I want to show you one more picture of an individual that's poor in spirit and mourns over their sin. Real quick, before we jump in, <laughs> real quick, uh, before we jump into this, go to Luke chapter 7 for me. Luke chapter 7. If there's somebody that has the spiritual gifts of helps and service in the room. If you could find me a glass of water, that would be awesome. If there's not, then somebody who has a speaking gift, suck it up and go get me some water. Luke chapter 7, are you there? Say, uh-huh. Thanks, Amy. Amy, way to go, Amy. Luke chapter 7, go to verse 36. Uh, some friends of mine um, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I uh, spent about seven years of my life, um, I went to Africa with, with this guy and um, three other guys. And I had been mentoring his son um, through sixth through eighth grade. I had this discipleship program at the school that um, I started. Was, it was called Boys to Men, where we looked at what God's word said about being a, a biblical man. And as a result of those 15 guys, thanks, Amy, as a result of mentoring those 15 guys and showing them what it meant to be a biblical man, their dads got involved in the process, and they too wanted to be biblical men. So it was a pretty cool deal, and uh, one of the dads was named Bruce Nichols and his son Alex, and I went to Africa for three weeks with Bruce Nichols. We spent time in a tent. It was pretty crazy. Well, while we were there, he found this piece of artwork for his wife. He's a smart man. Got his wife a good present that she would love. And the piece of artwork was this original artist from Johannesburg, Africa, South Africa. And it was just this picture of this lady close up on her face. And there's a foot at the bottom. And this woman is just weeping. And she's got her hair on Jesus' feet, the foot. That's what this story is right here. I know that you're familiar with it, but let's look at it with new eyes as we think about poor in spirit and 
weeping or mourning over our sin. Look at verse 36. Jesus is, by the way, dealing with these crazy Pharisees still. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Basically, most likely a prostitute. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, which she knew going into the Pharisee's house she was going to be judged, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Very expensive, very costly, probably cost her at least a year's wages, if not more. And standing beside Jesus at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet, Jesus' feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Crazy story is, this was also used in preparation for burial. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, notice, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him that she is a sinner. So there's one of those call box things where he's thinking this. Okay, he doesn't say it out loud. And look at what Jesus says to him. Jesus answers to this guy who has not verbalized what he's thinking. <laughs> and Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. He tells a story in order to confront this guy's thoughts. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves Little And I got I to gotta admit, um, actually go to the next verse, verse 48. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And he started this uproar because they're like, who can forgive sins but God? Yeah, they missed it. So I always thought of this like, well, she was a prostitute. She had a lot of sins. I was never a prostitute. I don't have a lot of sins. So it's going to be obvious that she loves Jesus more because he has forgiven her more. Or the, the drug dealer or the um, homosexual that comes to Jesus, of course, is going to weep and mourn over their sin because they've been given, forgiven much. That is so wrong and so self-righteous. Because if we are plagued with the cancer of sin, all of us have been forgiven much if we come to the cross and Jesus forgives us through the blood of Jesus. All of us have the same um, condemnation just as the prostitute, just as the homosexual, just as the lying thief, no good murderer. 
James, a very popular book tonight, also says that if we are guilty of one point of the law, we break it all. So if you've lied, not only are you a liar, you're an adulterer, you're a fornicator, you are a drunkard, you are a prostitute, you are a homosexual, you are all of those things. So i got to ask you the question. The picture of the woman at Jesus' feet weeping with her tears, wiping off in humility his dirty, nasty feet with her hair There is no low that she would not go in order to bless her master. That's poor in spirit that leads to mourning. That's Jesus who comforts her. Pretty awesome. Pretty cool. Uh, Let me give you this text. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But there will come a day when this is reality, that those who mourn will be comforted. Write this down. Revelation... 21, 1 through 5, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no pain, there will be no sickness, there will be no dying in the new Jerusalem. Right on, that's when the king comes back the second time to really pack a punch and set up his kingdom Well, last week we looked at those who mourn over sin individually. And this week I want to take two things with us. I want to look at what it means to mourn over our sin as a body of believers. As a faith family, what's it mean to mourn over sin within the body? That's the first place we're going to go. And then what's it mean as a body of believers to mourn over the sin of our city, our state, our nation, our world, okay? What's that look like? Somebody who is a mentor of mine said, you know what, instead of telling fancy, funny stories and coming up with all these crazy illustrations, why don't you use the Word of God to illustrate your point? So that's what we're going to do. What does it look like when a church, when a body of believers gets this part of the gospel of mourning over sin? Turn to 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't know anything about 1 Corinthians, it's a crazy book. Paul is basically punching them in the gut, and he sends this guy, Titus, to bring the letter to them to see the result of the letter, kind of like a hall monitor. And look at what Paul says. Uh, In the first couple of chapters, there's all these divisions. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Uh, There's all of these crazy things going on in this church. And then we get to the lovely chapter 5. Are you there? Say, uh uh-huh. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. What sin look like within the body of believers? It is actually reported that there is immorality, I'm in verse 1, among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. Here you are supposed to be salt and light and... The immorality within the church is worse than the immorality without of the church. What kind of immorality? Oh, gross, that someone has his father's wife. Think about it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Gross. Verse 2. You, church, corporate body, plural you, you have become, what's your translation say? What? Inflated, arrogant, and have not mourned. You become arrogant, have not mourned. Instead, 
so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged this guy who has so committed this and as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled together, and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Wow, this is intense. For the destruction of his flesh, so that his, so that his spirit might be, may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back with his kingdom. Verse 6, you're boasting in verse 1, or verse 2, it was pride and arrogance. In verse uh, 6, it's your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Wait for it, it'll explain itself in a second. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, as a result of Christ being sacrificed, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter... Notice this is 1 Corinthians, so there was probably another letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Parentheses from Lucarelli, they probably got this all wrong by what he says in verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, idiots, or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called, he does the Seinfeld, so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 13. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Whoa. Yes, I just read the whole chapter. What's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Is the emphasis on the sin? Yes or no? The sin, the gross sick sin of sleeping with your mamas or daddies or whatever. No. What's the emphasis on in this, in this section? How the body of believers has reacted. How has the body of believers reacted? Oh, they have. They've reacted. It's not just they've turned a blind eye. Say again. They've embraced it. They've allowed it to continue. They have not... What? What are some things they haven't done? Confronted. They haven't mourned. They've become, through not dealing with the sin that's in the body, they've become arrogant and boastful. Dang. What's the answer? What is Paul trying to get them to do? 
what? Kick this so-called brother out of the church. Why? The seriousness of being removed from the faith family, being removed from the community of believers, would get him to the dose of reality of, my sin is serious. And then he gives this example. How many bakers are in the house? My three-year-old, do you all know who Barefoot Contessa is? Yes or no? Guys, please say no, okay? Ladies, do you know who she is? Her first name is Ina. My three-year-old little girl loves Ina. Daddy, are we going to watch Ina? Because I watch Ina with her. No. This is a baking principle. What is happening in this example here? Yeast. Okay. Leaven. Give me the example. Give me the illustration. Okay. Sorry, hold off. Give me, what the, give me what the scripture says first, and then we'll talk about how it all fits in. What, what's he saying about leaven here? What? It spreads through everything. So in this case, what's the leaven that he's talking about? This sin that you have not mourned over in your arrogance, like a piece of yeast, a little sprinkle of yeast that infiltrates the whole batch of dough it will infiltrate the entire body of believers. One sin within the body of believers will be spread throughout the entire body like yeast in dough that you're making. When yeast is in dough, what happens to the dough? It rises, it spreads, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So the answer is, What's Paul tell him to do? Still using the example of bread and breaking. Get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the person who says they know God, but still deliberately walks in sin. Now God gives us the way to do this in Matthew chapter 18. We don't have time to get into it tonight. But if you're questioning this, I would really encourage you to look at this because it is really important. It shows that a body, a believer, people that have been changed by the gospel are immediately transported into a body of believers where one might be the arm, one might be the eye, but we're all part of the body. And if the eye willfully sins, it affects the foot and it affects the arm, it affects the whole body. Like gangrene, it spreads. And if you don't cut it off, it's going to bring disease, it's going to bring destruction, and ultimately it will bring death. Get rid of the leaven. I know some of you are kind of like, well, that's judgmental, that's harsh. Sorry, it's biblical. The reason why we are in the place we are in America today is because for 10, 15, 20 years, the church has said, eh, come one, come all. We don't care. Membership, church membership, eh, whatever. We don't need church membership. Those of you that are in this room tonight or in this community that, that have been taking part of what is going on here and you're not a church member, you need to be a church member. 
Because what that means is you covenant with us saying, I will bring and use my gifts. One, I've been changed by the gospel. That's a big deal. Two, I will bring my gifts and offer them within this local body of believers. I covenant that I will do that. And then we as a church, me as a member of the pastoral staff here, we covenant with you and we say, we will give you the opportunity to use your gifts, develop your gifts within our body, and we take seriously the watch care and the shepherding of your soul to keep out the wolves and to keep you pure and free from sin. That's our job. Keep out the wolves, keep doctrine pure, and to create an environment where you all are involved in each other's lives, confronting sin, rebuking, loving, graciously, like we've talked about over and over again with the gospel. Hey, you're doing this, but if you're saying that you're a believer and your identity is in Jesus, why are you going to this for identity? It's wrong. Why are you going to sex for your identity with this guy that's a jerk and a loser and he's just going to ruin your life? You confront them. They stay in sin, Matthew 18. You bring someone else. You confront them again in love, in grace, in truth, but with truth. Still doesn't happen. You bring it before the church, and the church gets involved, and 1 Corinthians 6 happens. It's beautiful when it happens correctly because it usually never gets to the kick-out point. It usually becomes people so sobered with their sin that they repent. It's beautiful. It's called the Ministry of Reconciliation. It's awesome. You're going to hear a lot about it from our church over the next couple of months because it's something that our whole entire church body is taking seriously of. If this is what the Word says and this is what we, this is what we need to be doing. Well, I would love to tell you um, that it immediately changed, but it didn't immediately change. If you jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it did eventually change. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that's what's awesome about being on this side of eternity. It's already been written, and we can see the result. Like I said, Titus was sent to um, was sent to. He bore the letter and uh, was the hall monitor to see what happened. And um, let's see, ver- chapter seven, verse two. He's talking about his joy. Blah blah blah. Okay, verse five. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us, him and his boys, by the coming of Titus, the guy who was sent as hall monitor. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, Titus, was comforted in you, the church. As he reported to us, remember that Paul just sent this really in-your-face letter, comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your... Your mourning over sin, your zeal for Paul, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow, yeah, it hurt when they were confronted by their sin, by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it for a second, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow. I don't know what Paul's doing right there, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That's awesome. You were made sorrowful 
to the point of repentance. Some of you have been confronted with your sin and you're like, oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sad, but it has not led you to repentance. Look at what Paul says about that right here. Um, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is in accordance to the will of God, what's it do? Godly sorrow produces repentance. What's repentance look like? Repentance without regret. Repentance without regret that leads to salvation. But the sorrow of the world where you're just like, oh, I'm sorry. Then you go and do the same thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Then you go and do the same thing again. Oh, I'm sorry, God. I'll never do it. Yeah, I will. That sorrow, what's it lead to? Death. You can keep reading and see what happens with this church. Um, It's amazing what the gospel does in them. So, what's this look like for us as a faith family? How do we apply 1 Corinthians chapter 5? And 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Please know that if you are confronted by the word of God in either something I say or something another individual says. It is not them that you should be mad at. You get that? What should you be angry or frustrated with? Well, yeah, yourself, but your sin, yeah. And God's Word, if they're doing this correctly, they're bringing the Word to you and saying, look, I get where I'm at. I know that I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to be like Jesus too. And so I'm coming to you in humility and out of love and care for your soul. And so as a result of that, here's what the word says about what you're doing. Homeboy, homegirl living together. I know it's my pet one. Homeboy, homegirl living together. Or a friend of yours who is enslaved to pornography. Or a friend of yours that is the social drinker that thinks that it's okay to get a buzz because a buzz isn't really drunk, even though you could still kill somebody. All of those. Okay? They know it's wrong. But you just come to them out of love, out of grace, out of truth, not bringing the hammer yet. And you say, look, okay, a friend of yours who's living together, sleeping around, um, whatever you want. Finding their significance in sex. You say, okay, First, First Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will for you. You want to know God's will for you? God's will for you is your sanctification. If you say that you're a believer, God's agenda in your life right now is to make you like Jesus. And then Paul defines that for you to abstain from sexual immorality. For you to flee immorality like Joseph. Hebrews 4.13 My mom made me memorize this over and over and over and over again. The marriage bed is to be held in honor and it should not be defiled because fornicators and adulterers having sex, not just penetration sex, but any form of sexual arousal before marriage with someone else who's not your mate. Fornicators and adulterers, you're married, you're having sex with somebody else, or you're getting off by looking at the computer, fornicators, adulterers, God will 
judge. Here's what God says. Here's my life. Ugh. Weight of sin. Weight of sin. You talk to them. You have that conversation with them. They, you're not responsible for their response. You are responsible for going to them in humility, but not their response. If they slap you in the face, they slap Jesus in the face. If they break down and cry and want repentance and want to change, you walk with them and help them to change. A friend of yours who is addicted to alcohol, same deal. Galatians says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're getting drunk every weekend, dude. You say you have no money, it's because you burn all your cash at the bar trying to hook up. Are you a believer or not? Because if you are, this should mess with you. Don't be drunk with wine. Well, you know, I'm not really getting drunk. You're wasted, dude. You're wasted. They change. Hallelujah. James chapter 5 says, you've saved their soul. Rejoice. If they don't, you're not responsible. You are responsible because then you have to take another brother or a sister along with you who cares about that individual and you confront them again. I'm concerned about you. You're wasting your life. You see the body life here? You see what it means for us to mourn over the sin of others? We get involved in the lives of other people. Not because I'm better than you, you're a drunkard. No, because the gospel has so affected us and we see somebody who is putting their identity in something else besides Jesus that will self-destruct and it will ruin them. And that messes with us so we get off our apathetic butts and we get involved in their lives. Right on. Everybody say right on. So if someone confronts you, it's not judge, it's they love your soul. They love your soul. They don't want to see you destroyed by sin. Little itty bitty sin that comes in and affects. If you look at the Old Testament with this, there are countless examples of where one sin infects the whole encampment of Israel. I think specifically of the sin of Achan, where they go in, don't take anything from Jericho. Achan takes things from Jericho, hides it under his tent, and they go to battle, and men die because of Achan's sin. Another one, Miriam, and uh, what's her brother's name? I can't think of it. Aaron, they have this issue with Moses, and they grumble and complain, and <laughs> Moses is then involved, God gets involved, calls them to the tent, and Miriam is struck with leprosy. Because of sin. The whole of Israel has to wait for seven days in order to move to the promised land because of Miriam leaders, because of Miriam and Aaron's sin. Could it be that the kingdom of God is not advancing because of the sin that is in the church? Could it be that the kingdom of God in DFW, in Eulis Hurst, Eulis Bedford, is not advancing with our group because of the sin, the leaven that still remains. Clean out the leaven through the cross of Jesus. 
right on. Mourn over your sin and the sin of the people around you. Let's look at one more thing and then we're done. What's it look like for us to mourn over the sin? Oh, by the way, it's awesome that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it worked. Paul confronted, they repented. Godly sorrow that led to repentance. It's awesome. I encourage you to look at it even more. I know some of you have a lot of questions right now about this. Turn in your Bible to an old school, Old Testament prophet of Ezekiel. Ezekiel likes to use the word whore. I don't think he does in our chapter tonight. Um, But, let's go, yeah, whore. Go to chapter 9 of Ezekiel. As we're flipping, what happens, please, if sin within the body of believers goes unchecked? It spreads. Has anybody seen examples of that? Everybody's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Anybody want to tell us about it? Where sin, mom always said, your sin ain't an island. It affects other people. Have you seen where the sin of one person infects other people? Yes. Those of you that say yes, give give us an example. our language. We said last week that you can tell a lot about a person by what they laugh at, by what entertains them. So think through of like entertainment over the past two weeks. We got it? Like what you've allowed to come in? Mourning or laughing? Y'all tell me. Mourning or laughing? I will admit that I don't watch MTV and just start mourning when I, when I see stuff on TV. I don't watch, I love Saturday Night Live because I like sarcasm and, and comedy. But the Lord really hit me in the face with this one this week as I'm laughing at things that are reprehensible to God for the sake of a laugh. Well, look at what, um, let me give you some of the context for Ezekiel. Uh, This was a message to Judah about the abominations that were taking place in the land. Ezekiel was written during the Babylonian captivity. And for you history buffs, um, you know what that means. But Babylonian captivity was one of the worst um, captivities that Israel went through. They were in captivity to Assyria, to Babylon. It was really bad. Um, Babylon, what they would do when they would come in to take over a city or a nation... Um, they would come in and they would get the people and then they would transport them and they would mix all these different people together so that all of their identity was taken out. And they were just confused, people that had no history, people that had no um, backstory. Okay. Well, Daniel, if you know anything about Daniel, um, he was taken on the first captivity, Babylonian captivity, Okay, when he was a little boy. Uh, Ezekiel was taken during the second captivity. 
second siege of Jerusalem. Um, At the time of Ezekiel chapter 9, though, Jerusalem had not been totally destroyed yet. It will be later, okay? Totally destroyed. God had yet to execute his judgment on Jerusalem. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Jerusalem was really important. Jerusalem was the place that God said earlier in the Old Testament, I, it is the place on which I set my name. And yet God is willing to allow it to be destroyed because of his people's sin. Okay? This is an amazing story. Look at um, chapter 9. Then he, God, cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came out from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Uh, The bronze altar in the temple, you've got the gate of the temple, uh, there's only one way into the temple. You've got the court, and, and then you have the bronze altar, which is where they would make their sacrifice for sin. Okay, So they're there at the place where sacrifice for sin, and maybe this mourning is supposed to take place. Then the glory, verse 3, the glory of the Lord, of the God of Israel, went up from the cherub on which it had been, the glory of God set on top of the temple, to the threshold, the gate of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord says to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all of the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city... Okay, so linen guy, I almost said loin guy, linen case, put a mark, put a mark on who? Those who mourn or sigh or groan at the sin in the city. But to the others, who are the others that are standing there? Uh, Yeah, everyone else, which includes whom? Go back to verse 1. The executioners. To the others, the executioners, he said, go through the city after the dude with the uh, linen and strike. Do not let your eye have pity. Do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders of Israel who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile this temple and fill the courts with the blood of the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out to God saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem. Then he said to me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood. Back in Deuteronomy, the way that the land was filled with blood was through murder, through treachery, and the city is full of perversion. 
For they say the Lord has forsaken this land and God does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case reported saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. What's going on in this text? Cleansing of Jerusalem. Who summons the executioners? God. Why? Why does he summon them? Nope. Look at verse 1 and 2. They've got their destroying weapons. Look at verse 4. What's the context of Jerusalem at this point? What's going on? They what? They've lost the understanding of who they are. Abominations. Willful sin. They're walking in willful sin. And so God calls forth these two groups. Executioners and Guy with the writing case. What's the guy with the writing case going to do? No, not pass judgment. What? Mark, go throughout the entire city. And everyone who sighs and groans and mourns over sin, what's he going to do? Mark on the forehead. Opposite of that, those who do not mourn, sigh, groan over sin, no mark. He goes throughout the entire city... And then the executioners are summoned. When they go, where do they start? The sanctuary, the temple, the religious, the leaders. It starts with the elders and then goes throughout all of the city. And there's Ezekiel saying, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's mourning over what's taking place in this city. What's the application for us? What, Pauline? Woe if we don't mourn. What would happen if a man with a writing case came into our midst tonight and the executioners came into our midst tonight over the sin that we've seen over the past week or two? And they looked and saw if we had mourned over sin or if we had joyfully wholeheartedly gave approval to sin. What would happen? What if it went through the 4,000 members of our church? Where we're praying for America to have revival, but are we mourning over the sin in America? Are we praying for America to have revival so our bank accounts are back to where they used to be and our 401k is? Or because God's name is being profaned in America? Where will it start? The church. Later in scripture it says, let judgment begin with the house of God. Mm. That messes with me. Of like, Lord, am I mourning? Am I mourning over the sin that I see all around me? Or am I just like, 
Yeah, that's how people are. What do you all think about this before we close? I want to close you close with an encouragement since we're on such like the ooh. What do y'all think about this? Have you ever seen this scripture before? Besides your reading through the Bible in a year? What do y'all think? What do you mean, Rob? It affects your attitude. I would dare say that you have to have, before you even do that, you say, whoa, woe is me. Have mercy on me first so that then I can be a conveyor of that mercy to others. What else? What do y'all think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Two things I'd say to you, Pauline. Number one, the same spirit that's in me lives in you. He's your resident teacher. And you studying the word of God for yourself, same deal. All I'm doing is focusing on the text. And instead of doing a drive-by where you just read it, I'm asking questions of the text. It's called observation. What's the text say? And that's what you're learning how to do, which is awesome. Right on, Pauline. I call your name out every week, Pauline. (laughs) Pauline's birthday, everybody. Are you mourning or are you happy? You're happy tonight. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. reference that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fourth man in the fire. That's cool. What else? Ezekiel 9. Those of you that have never seen this before, what are you thinking? Are you just ready to go eat? Is that the deal? What do you mean, Greg? Lazy week. What do you mean, Andrea?
Yeah, I would say if we have a problem with mourning, then we have a problem with Scripture. Because we don't view the world the way that God says. We don't view God for who He says He is in the Word. And so therefore, we don't mourn over what God hates in us first and then in the lives of people around us. Not in a, a prideful way of I'm better than them, but look at what they're... I know what they're doing and what they're searching after like Jeremiah 2, they are digging and digging and digging, and they're never going to find satisfaction. That's sad. Paul, what do you think? Totally calling you out, by the way. And again, we're not talking about where we have a standard of righteousness on somebody that's not a believer. And we say, well, they shouldn't be doing this because that's morally wrong. We mourn over the fact that they are doing that because they're searching for identity in something besides Jesus. And only Jesus will give them a new identity to where he shatters that sin in their lives. So we mourn over the fact that these people are going to those other wells instead of going to the fountain of living waters. The, the fruit, yeah, we mourn over the initial sin, but we really mourn over the root of the problem, that they are going to something besides Jesus to satisfy them. But there's hope, because we have this treasure in earthen vessels we have the treasure of the gospel. We have the transformation of Jesus, the power of God to salvation for all who believe. That's awesome. Anybody else? One more. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Tell us what you do real quick so everybody knows. Well, I pray that, that the Lord continues to start this within you as you live your life and as you look at what's going on in the world around you, as you allow influences to come into your life, whether that be conversations like Greg was saying of, with friends or what you're watching. It sounds so Baptist of this to focus on this, but what you're listening to Every aspect that you allow to come into your life, is it, a, is it in line with what Scripture says? Is it beautiful? Is it pure? Is it, is it lovely? Is it redeemed? Or is it just trash? 
Is it just the scum of hell? And I, I pray that God, I've been praying for weeks that God would continue just to allow me to be broken over the sin that's here, the sin that is in our church, and the sin that is, is in DFW, is in right down the road. And how can I judge sin when I'm not involved to be a part of the solution taking the gospel to those people? That's why we're doing all these things that we're doing. That's why we're talking about being missional. That's why we're doing this water thing. That's why we're taking blankets. That's why we're doing everything we do. We can't mourn over sin if we don't know what's going on in our community around us. Let me read this to you. This is why Jesus came. It's in Isaiah 61. And Jesus quotes this early in his ministry in several places in Scripture. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Notice the two. The favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. God, we come before you tonight, and Lord, I know that it's so, we've had so much and so many scripture, so much stuff tonight. God, our prayer is simple, that you would allow us to see you for who you really are through your word. God, again, forgive us for not being diligent, for not being disciplined to be in the word to get to know who you really are. Forgive us for having this false concept of who you are. And, and Lord, we ask that you would allow us to experience who you are through your word. And as Shana said and others said, that it would mess with us. Lord, that we would be in the shadow of the Almighty and that it would humble us. And Father, that this process of mourning over sin Lord, it would be evident within this faith family and this body that we would mourn over our own personal sin, that we would have the tenacity like Romans 6 and Romans 8 talk about, would we would kill sin in our lives as individuals and as a body. Lord, that we would be able to see Godly sorrow that leads to repentance and repentance that leads to life in our midst. God, that only happens when we value the word, when we're not ashamed to say what the word says and to call sin, sin. And when we're also invested in the lives of our community, our brothers and our sisters who name the name of Christ. But God, we ask beyond that that you would allow us to mourn, to be broken, to be devastated by what's taking place in our city, right around our block, right around where we live. 
that it would devastate us, Father, because there's hope in Jesus. There's life in Jesus. There's change in Jesus. So, God, I ask that tonight that you would just invade this this room. Lord, if we need to be broken over sin, God, I ask that you would do that. Cut through the arrogance, cut through the pride, and just devastate. Lord, if we know of sin that's taking place in our midst, whether in our body here at the gathering or within our church, Lord, I ask that you would devastate us with the truth of the gospel. The seriousness of sin. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. It took a life. It took a sacrifice. It took blood. It took anguish, agony. It took the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. It's a serious deal. Lord, allow us again to have that tenacity against sin, that ferocious heart of a warrior where we would fight against sin in our lives and in the midst of our community, faith family. And God, as we begin to talk about what it means to be missional and living the gospel outside of the walls of the church, Jesus, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Would you please 